Welcome to the Who Knows This podcast, where I track down in the trenches experts to answer questions that we all want the answers to. I'm Sam Visnick, and I'm a veteran in working with people with chronic aches and pains by way of massage therapy, exercise, pain education, hypnotherapy, and lifestyle education. Today, we're going to talk about the ALF approach and how it's helping to change the way orthodontics is done. So let's get started. Okay, so I'm going to read a brief bio here so you know who our guest is. Her name is Dr. Tasha Terzo, DO. She graduated from Western University, Permona, California in 1994, where she received a postgraduate osteopathic manual medicine and anatomy fellowship. She's a clinical adjunct assistant professor at Toro College of Osteopathic Medicine, where she has been a guest lecturer since 2007. Dr. Terzo has also been co-treating patients and working monthly with Dr. Nordstrom since 1995, who is the developer of the ALF Appliance, and she's also a founding member of the ALF Educational Institute. Dr. Terzo is an internationally recognized expert in the application of osteopathy and functional dentistry, with a focus on the use of the advanced Lightwire functional devices, ALF for short, and TMD. So let's welcome her. All right, Dr. Terzo, thank you so much for being here. And uh, this is going to be an amazing topic. And I think for a lot of people, it's going to be a very eye-opening topic as something that I don't even know if most people have even heard about this, but it is a big one. So thank you so much for being here. Absolutely. Thank you for the opportunity to share. Absolutely. Okay. So right off the bat, I'm going to start with some, some big picture questions so we can kind of set the stage for some more specific things. Um, and you are essentially what I would perceive, and you could correct me uh, if wrong, but uh, an, an expert at uh, airway issues, right? And that's anything involving the cranium and the jaw and the mouth, because that's what you write about in your book. Now, that's a very specific discipline to go into um, from being an osteopathic doctor. What led you into this direction? That's a good question. And let me just reframe it as a little bit of a bar bigger picture than airway. So um, airway is literally the space behind your tongue and in front of our neck, basically, that space. And um, it has been termed airway and it's caught on with the dentist. And one of the reasons why it's so exciting for the dentist is because once they start to realize that what they're doing to the face and the teeth is affecting the airway, they started to get an integrative perspective of how large their, uh, their changes and their process um, and their treatments are affecting the patients. So I don't think of myself as an airway um, osteopath or an airway physician um, because it's just a small collapsible tube, soft tissue tube, and it's all innervated. It's the soft tissue. So it's a much bigger picture than that. If I had to like term it, I would say that I have an area of expertise within the cranial facial um, area, but as an osteopath, I am certainly treating the entire body with every single one of my patients. Um, so it's really the growth and development of face and the intraoral function that creates that space of airway. Meanwhile, I do lecture a lot within the world of airway. Um, and what led me into this is actually a really great story. So I was quite young when I started my practice here in Santa Cruz. I kind of went like the preschool, kindergarten, all the way through, through medical school and, um, uh, you know, internships in the hospital. And then I did a, uh, actually a four-year program in Berkeley with classical homeopathy, which has been something that's been a great tool to be able to use in addition to my practice. And when I started my practice, I literally inherited the office manager 
the tables, the artwork, the everything. And I saw on my paper schedule, because that's when we had paper schedules, um, it was once a month on Wednesdays was blocked out and it had Nordstrom written at the top. And I thought, what, what is this Nordstrom thing? Like, do I get to go shopping at Nordstrom once a month? Like, are they, you know, uh, not that I'm a shopper at all, but uh, it was, I, it was confusing. And so my office manager at the time who I inherited the practice from another osteopath said, no, Dr. Derek Nordstrom's comes to the office once a month on Wednesdays. And Dr. Derek Nordstrom is the inventor and the creator of the Alpha Appliances. So he had been connecting in with the OSPAT that was there previously, who was there for three or four years. And when I came in, we started this once a, once a month process and he would come up and we would spend all day, some in, sometimes into the wee hours of the night, working four-handedly with patients. And at that time, the appliances were still being developed. So I was the canary in the coal mine by putting my hands on with cranial osteopathy and kind of saying, yes, no, yes, no, in terms of the designs of the appliances. And we're looking for a specific, uniquely individually made appliance for that person for what their issues were. So that was the beginning. And that was 27 years ago, I think. And he still comes to my office now only once every three months. He hasn't been taking new patients for many years. So we're finishing cases. Um, but it was, you know, there's so much that we've learned, so much we've learned in this field. You know, back then we weren't identifying tongue ties. It just wasn't being looked at and identified. And perhaps I actually think there weren't as many. Well, let's, let's, let's back up in that because there's a lot of juicy tidbits in there. Sure. As, as we were beginning the process and saying, you know, you're, you're, you've got this, um, he's a, was he an endodontist, I believe? He, uh, Dr. Derek Nordstrom is a general dentist. General dentist. Okay. So when he was coming into your office and he was developing in these appliances, so obviously there was a need for this. And um, what kinds of signs or symptoms were people showing up into your office with mm -hmm. who were having issues for which this was the solution? What were, what were they showing up with? Mm -hmm. Well, the same issues that, that we're identifying now, which is um, uh, facial growth, um, discrepancies, let's say the maxilla's back or the mandible's back, or they're both maxillary mandibular retruded. Um, it could be uh, jaw joint issues, headaches. Um, there were at, there were my patients that I couldn't get somewhere with the cranial and they kept needing to be treatment dependent, let's call it. So they kept having to come back and come back. They'd be great for four or five days after the treatment with their headaches or their neck pain. And then they'd come back and then was like, Hmm, let's look at how the teeth are coming together because as the teeth are coming together is locking in those strain patterns. Gotcha. And so were they, did they show up specifically? I mean, what percentage, I'm curious out of this, were showing up as kind of uh, routine general kind of TMJ symptoms. Did they have that or did they have the other symptoms? And it was not at all obvious that it was coming from the mouth. Was that pretty common or were they showing up with both? Well, the, the patients, there were not that many patients that were actually coming in saying, I want the ALF. I want the alpha approach. There were more my patients that I would then assess and determine that they needed this process and then had to educate them about that. Because this is, again, 26 years ago, 27, whatever, where people didn't know about it. Um, and they also then were patients from Dr. Nordstrom's office that he was needing to have a forehanded treatment with. So he felt that he, he was stuck. He needed some help. He needed some more hands-on. And then we'd collaborate together. Okay. So yeah. So we had a combo approach of dealing with in the mouth and everything exactly. else that can go with it. Because exactly. This is an appliance that is, is biocompatible, um, meaning that it augments the inherent motion that's present and it augments interoral function, helping to integrate it. So it's not doing, uh, you know, 
psychological thermodynamics. Every every action, one direction has an equal and opposite reaction. So this is an appliance that was created specifically to not have a counterbalance um, consequence. So like with retrusive braces, you put the braces on the outside, everything goes back, the head goes forward to open the airway because you're limiting the airway by volume decrease, pushing the tongue back. So then the head has to shift and change. So then they start looking all the head for posturing that were happening a lot of times with our teenagers and they're slouching and all the moms and dads are like, sit up, sit up, but they can't sit up because they can't breathe when they stand up because their head goes back. Yes. So let's talk about that for a second, because in your book in particular, um, the alpha approach, so we spend a good amount of time on the front end talking about the development of the mouth and the cranium and the airway. And this is the idea, as, as I've talked about a lot of times, is you know we spend so much time as practitioners working with people that have symptoms of just long-term structural imbalance and just stress of life and so forth, that you start to wonder if you were to go back in time and actually uh, address this far earlier then maybe they wouldn't have dealt with such severe issues at this time, in which case now we're ultimately a lot of times managing them, whether we are actually being able to fix them. So the development of the cranium itself and the mouth and the uh, airway, let's talk about that for a second and, and the proper development. And at what point does this start to kind of deviate and go into the direction that we don't want it in? Can you talk about that a bit? Yes, I could probably talk about that for hours. Um, <laughs> let me pare it down. Um, so birth. The compressive forces that happened at birth are formative. Um, when the tissue is compressed and restricted, there can be an asymmetrical growth that occurs from that point. And we really develop from the head down. We also develop uh, structurally around function. So the function of eating, swallowing, breathing, and vision are the functions within the cranium that are going to dictate the formative, the, the unwind or the compensations for the compressions that happened at birth, let's say. So we so, get, so we get squeezed and then all of these things unsqueeze us basically. Well, we get, we get squeezed and we get squeezed in different ways, right? Everyone's birth is going to be unique depending upon the shape and size of mom's pelvis, whether there was Pitocin or not Pitocin involved, the strength of mom's pelvic diaphragm. So, so many factors go into the unique vector forces that occurred during birth. But what's, 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 what, ha what can happen is, is that, and this is really key, and this is a key point that, that is being missed, even within my own osteopathic profession, is that the occiput, which is the base of the head, this bone back here, embryologically, when we're born, it's in three pieces. And some of the pieces are, the, all the pieces are all the cranial bones, 26, 22 bones are all floating in fluid, very much so when we're born because we've got those fontanelles. So they're all floating. And the compressive forces, because the baby's head is what opens the cervix, those compressive forces go in, but they get stuck mostly at that occipital, you know, that the occiput and C1 junction, because that's the first cartilaginous joint within the cranium. And the occiput that's sitting on top of that, that's in three pieces that connects with that first cervical vertebra, there's a lot of shift and change that can happen. And there are um, some vital uh, cranial nerves that exit through the cranium out into the face and the rest of the body that are floating in fascia also. So you can imagine all this, you know, all the knowledge we now know about fascial strain patterns, right? And myofascial release, that's happening at the baby's base of their head. And so one of the things that we can look at is certainly plagiocephaly. Plagiocephaly is kind of, and torticollis, those are kind of more extreme black and whites, like this baby's in trouble. 
right? So, so, so we- plagiocephaly, um, just for our listeners who are not aware of this, is the what is the flattening, uh, having a flat spot on the head somewhere with the baby, right? Which is pretty common, it appears now. Yeah, it's it's even just a mis- misshaped head, yep. <laughs> not okay. a round head, because it can be flat on one side, but it can be cone heads, right? So the flattening can happen when the baby's spending too much time laying on their back as they get older. But at birth, the whole molding of the cranium tells us the forces that went into the baby and can they unwind those cranial strain patterns. So what's really amazing that's new information is that one of the aspects, one of the functions that unwinds cranial strain patterns is tongue function. So it's a proper resting of the tongue in the palate and it's a proper swallow. And a baby's swallow and even a two to three-year-old swallow is different than an adult swallow. And that transition has to happen to be able to continue to open our cranium. Gotcha. And so, and right away, and and mothers will be aware of this, is that uh, we've heard a lot, at least about problems with latching or the quality of the latch and those sorts of things. Is that where you start to exhibit signs of challenges with that, with that tongue position and and then needing this to train it? Or what, what do you start seeing this as first? Exactly. So nursing capacity to nurse is the first and uh, step as a first developmental stage that we're going to assess to see if they're going to have a functional airway. If they can't do a proper latch, if they can't do a proper second swallow, a lot of times mom thinks, oh, I had poor milk supply, but it's moms always think it's their fault. (laughs) Our parents do. Right. So it was not really the poor milk supply. It's the lack of stimulation to get the release. And that means that the tongue doesn't have its full range of motion and or its strength. And there are two different, two different components that need to be assessed. And again, this is a key, key missing piece um, in lactation specialists and myofunctional therapists um, um, that it's not just the range of motion of the tongue. So these tongues that are not functioning well, it's not because just because they may be tethered, you know, like this you know, tethered tongue, so they can't move. It could be that they have an impingement, an entrapment of a hypoglossal nerve, which is a 12th cranial nerve that innervates the tongue. And that's one of the important nerves, cranial nerves that comes out right underneath that occiput that again is in three different pieces with a lot of fascial connection that is the area of greatest compromise during birth. So a lazy tongue that kind of stays down low and even speech issues swallow issues, chewing issues later on, this could be because of what in osteopathy we call occipital conchoid compression. And these are the expressions of this is definitely difficulty nursing, but it's also the colicky baby. So if we have a baby that has got digestion issues, which is vagus, um, it has uh, even mild torticollis, which is the 11th cranial nerve, the accessory nerve to the SCM and the trapezius, or they don't, and or all of the above, they don't have good tongue function. These are the babies that need to be treated right away and being able to release and open the base of the cranium to allow those nerves optimal function because those nerves are very much involved in the development of the face and the airway. Very good stuff. And one thing that comes to mind in here is also um, because of the complexity of how much this sounds, it oftentimes almost maybe has present as these are cases that are severely pathological or really obvious. And that may not be the case. It'll be your input on this, but minor things, again, just the colickiness doesn't necessarily have to be these overt symptoms or obviously knowing that something is wrong, but they could be subtly present, right? Yes. Um, colicky, colicky from my perspective is a major issue because that's a, that's a clear sign 
that these nerves are not free to function optimally. But I would say reflux could be more of a, or spitting up, let's take spitting up. We think of it as normal because it's common, but just because something is common doesn't mean that it's actually physiologically functionally normal. Yes. So babies should not be spitting up. They shouldn't, you shouldn't be nursing them and them spitting up. It's either because the tongue isn't functioning well enough and they're swallowing too much air. And so then they have to burp too much because they don't have good, a latch. And it could also be certainly food allergies is, is, can be involved with mom may have to modify diet. Um, but it also could be the vagus isn't functioning well. Uh, the hypogloss, the glossopharyngeal nerve, um, um, the ninth cranial nerve is not functioning well. Those both have to do with the second swallow. So spitting up after nursing, you know, a little bit maybe, but if there's an excess, you know, babies should not be spitting up after they nurse. So that's another question that I ask. Uh, when I'm seeing, and I actually ask these questions to adults when I'm seeing adults for TMD issues, I always ask a birth history, always, and a pregnancy history too, um, because it gives me an insight into maybe how chronic this issue is. Did they grow with this issue? Or is this like a traumatic, they were in a car accident, whiplash, jaw, um, jaw hypermobility, and that's when I'm dealing more of a structural traumatic issue. Yeah. And all of these things that this comes to mind, uh, the process that happened with, with my son is that when he was, my daughter was the firstborn, um, you know, she generally had no problems and we laid her in her, uh, crib and, you know, perfectly nice rounded head didn't seem to have any of these problems, but my son was a different animal. We had him and he liked to sleep in this kind of, um, I forget what we call it, but it was a certain kind of oval shaped or rounded, uh, sleeper. And he loved this and not as much rolling. And we started to see some flatness occurring on the back of his head. And he was a constant spitter upper. He was constantly spitting up. And this was becoming a concern that there was reflux, et cetera. And again, as you know, parents, and even somebody who's kind of in this industry is, you know, you're not around that. That's a very specific specialty. And all we kept getting was the same, well, that's fine. He'll grow out of it or keep him more upright. And, you know, which further facilitated keeping him in that and the flattened part of his head and, and spitting up. We had such a challenge with this. And then um, again, from an evaluation standpoint, as we would go in and saying, hey, you know, maybe we should do something here because in particular, I'm concerned about his oral development um, because of the flatness of his head. And again, we just kept getting the same dismissal. It's fine, it's cosmetic, it's not a problem, but I knew that this is gonna be a problem at some point. Mm -hmm. And yes, he did grow out of the uh, spitting up and that did eventually stop. But then we get stuck in this phase where it's now about his cranial shape and is it going to get better? And we're starting to see changes in his jaw and how his teeth are fitting together. And the solution is, you know what it is, stick a helmet on him, you know, and that's just going to force everything straight. And we just kind of know that that is, that is not a great answer. Um, and is that something that you see a lot? It's just, there's a lot of dismissal. These things don't matter and it's just cosmetic. Yeah, that, that is still the, um the word that's out there in traditional medicine. And it's just simply because they're just, they don't know what else to do. They just don't know. They're, most of them are good people. Most of them care. They're just not educated. They're not getting the training that they need to, to have an insight into what the actual issue is. So how old is your son? Now? My son is now uh, three. He's going to be four. Okay. So I'm still, okay. and there's another big uh, side of motivation for me to interview, to talk about more about this, because the process of that um, I think is going to be helpful. I think he's young enough, I would imagine, to still be able to strongly influence these factors um, and, you know, be able to have a successful outcome before things start to kind of solidify themselves. 
Oh, for sure. For sure. Three and yep. four year olds quite young. And it's, it's what a blessing that you know what you know, so you can help influence his growth and development from this point, you know, forward. absolutely, you know, 60% of the facial growth is complete by the age of six years old. But the cartilaginous joint within the middle of the head doesn't really come together. It doesn't so much ossify, it, it still has a flexion to it, but it's not cartilaginous anymore at 28 years old. Wow. So yeah. we've got some time. Yeah, yeah. So let's talk real quick about uh, one thing you brought up that I want to talk a little bit more about. So we talked about that tongue being able to I sit ac across the roof of the mouth. Can I circle back around? Because there's something yes. that you said that was really important that I really want to um, uh, connect with you about. So um, especially for the work that you do. So one of the things that may have happened, and I haven't had a birth history or you know a history of your son or anything like that, from just what you're saying, what caught my attention is, is that we have so many, so many of our babies are in these, um, you know, C-shaped, let's call them C-shaped, right? The car seats are C-shaped. The bascones can be C-shaped. And what that does is inhibit core muscles and it brings the head more forward in that head forward posture. If they've got restrictions at the base of the cranium, that's a hard place to go. They don't have that. They, when you bring them forward, they're going to go into more of a strain pattern at that base where the occiput meets the C1. So that most likely was part of the issue. So I tell, you know, as much as we can, we wanna not put our kids in these C-shaped experiences. Again, that just leads them to growing in this head forward posturing. Um, and again, it inhibits the development of the core muscles, right? Cause you can imagine it's just bends it like this. So the erectus abdominis just gets shorter and tighter rather than having an expansion contraction, which is actually strength. And that's what everything is made. I mean, if we go to Target, you go to Walmart, whatever, you just yeah. look down the baby aisles, everything is that. So you're meant to almost believe and accept Absolutely. that that's just normally how it goes. Absolutely. There are some car seats, I think, out of Europe that Europe, of course, has um, always been a little more forward thinking in terms of an integrative approach um, that you can get that are more upright. So just for the moms, for the parents that are, you know, have their kids in these C-shaped, you know, car seats. Uh, that's one thing we can do to try to help. I feel like this could be an entire book. And of course, I, I feel like well, a lot of links, <laughs> a, a lot of links are going to be produced at some point underneath this video as well. Uh, so let's do talk about that, the, the uh, tongue position on the roof of the mouth and what that's actually doing and the inhibiting factors, one of them you mentioned, which was called the tongue tie. Can you explain a little bit more about those two issues? Yeah. So uh, the face again, grows out from the base of the cranium. So when we're born, we're mostly cranium and a very, very small little face because what grows the face is the functions of the face. And it grows down and forward out from the base of the cranium. So strain patterns back here are going to dictate some of the growth that happens through here, but also all of this and how these are functioning, how our eyes are functioning. Are we doing nasal breathing? Are we doing, do we have a good lip seal? Is our tongue up in the roof of our mouth? And do we have a good up and back swallow? Those are the functions that really create the face and actually dictate the position of the teeth. So we used to think that, you know, teeth position, um, were, was more of a genetic, but now we see absolutely not genetic, it's epigenetic. Epigenetic means that yes, we have a certain amount of you know, DNA that's that potential, but what's turned on and off depends upon our environment, right? So it's yes. what we eat, how we eat, how we swallow. And I was going to bring that up is that first of all, it's, it's dramatically obvious when you look at the cover of the book, because this was a significant factor yeah. is the, the development of the face, especially obvious from the side, 
And this brings back the idea that I think a lot of people in the natural health field are very familiar, hopefully at this point, with the work of Weston A. Price in Nutrition and Physical Degeneration, where he talked about traveling to a lot of uh, countries and looking at indigenous cultures and seeing that their facial development was dramatically different and far less problems with their dental, uh, with their dental structure and their teeth and, sh and shapes um, or teeth not growing in crooked and so forth. And they were dramatically different than what he was seeing in, in cultures like in America. Yes. And there's a whole chapter on that in the book, um, because what we eat uh, is what we are. Um, that's a large part of the nutrients that we have to form our structure, but also specifically in the face, we're going to definitely see structures that express what, how we've been using our jaw. And since the industrial time, it's just kind of been downhill in terms of facial, optimal facial growth. Our food um, got softer. Uh, and now so many of the kids, you know, and I get it. I, you know, I was a working mom, you know, with two kids. Um, I get it. I get it. But, you know, you pass the yogurt. They didn't have this when I had my kids, but now they have these yogurt things that you pass back or these you know, things that, and there's, there, the children are not chewing anymore. They're just not, they're not using their jaws. We're not doing, we're not chewing on bones, not necessarily, we, the kids have to chew on bones, but anything that's hard, as long as they're old enough to be, and they have a functional enough um, uh, tongue to be able to chew and swallow, but we're not chewing. And so our mandibles are less developed. And you can see the progression when you look at the forward growth of the face, it is much less. And now what we're seeing is um, we call it bimaxillary retrusion, where both the maxilla and the mandible are actually further back. And it's a simple way to, to test. You can actually just take a measurement from the outside of your ear here to the outside of your eye here. This distance from here to here should equal the distance down here to here, right? So at least that will tell us are the maxilla and mandible relatively growing together. Now they still could be further back, but that's like one simple little screening process that parents can do to see, you know, how, you know, where are we at in terms of growth and development of the face? Gotcha. And so in particular, that tongue position going up, right? And we want that to go there to try to push that open and create some more space. Yeah. You've got this tongue tie situation. What is a tongue tie? A tongue tie is actually an embryological um malformation of the tongue that in utero, their tissue underneath the tongue, which is considered to be a midline structure. Let's just do it like this. The tissue underneath the tongue here is supposed to go through apoptosis, which means it's supposed to resolve. It's supposed to die off. And then we have more of a range of motion of our tongue, but for whatever reason, and I have my thoughts on it, which I think it has to do with, um, two main components. One is that I think the toxins, the biotoxins that we're exposed to and the potential an MTHFR gene, which is a gene that is, if we, if we have, um, don't have enough of a enzyme that functions in the liver to detoxify, then we can have a developmental process that gets stalled. And so this doesn't get reabsorbed. The other is very interesting, and there is studies starting to happen around this. And I find it, it makes so much sense to me, even though we don't have, you know, evidence base behind it, but that is that if mom's airway is compromised. So if you've got mom with a, like a long face, open mouth breathing, doesn't breathe through her nose, the womb is in having the same oxygenation issue as she is having. And so the structure of the baby is formed within 
a lower oxygen containing environment. And so that's when we see these babies with their mandibles way back, which are retrocanathic, but also the tongue, the tongue doesn't have its full major motion. And so the ties aren't being resolved within utero. Gotcha. And so what I was taught in particular, the challenge um, is, and through uh, places like the Postural Restoration Institute, through their studies, the problem we see is not being able to optimize and influence these things as best we can by that critical point that seems to be, especially here in America, at roughly around age nine, where kids go in and start having their teeth inspected and looking at everything from a cosmetic perspective to get braces, and essentially, for a lack of a better way of putting it, locking them into their dysfunction what I was told. So do you see it that way? And so literally at this point, the, the purpose of using braces and so forth is try to force the teeth to look straight for cosmetic purposes. But what is this doing for all of that stuff that has already been occurring? That's right. That's absolutely right. So um, nine years old is still a great time to start the ALF process. So, you know, as soon as we can get them in the chair and be compliant and they've got molars that we can attach the appliance to, we're kind of good to go. So we've had patients four years old, uh, three and a half, um, start with the ALF appliance and it goes so fast. It just catches them up and gets them in that normal growth and development process. And they're pretty much good to go. Um, the issue is, is that if the, a lot of, so if there is dysfunction in the teeth and how the teeth come together, we know that there's a myofunctional issue. We know that there's something not right with the tongue or there's something that's not right with the swallow or something not right with the breathing or something's been, and a reason for that could be the compression of the base of the cranium if we're talking about children. So when you just take the teeth and you move the teeth around, and then again, dentin is the most, um, it's the hardest substance in the body, it's gonna win. So how the teeth lock themselves in will again, lock in those cranial strain patterns because the teeth are merely a, the position of the teeth are merely an expression of the soft tissue and the functionings of the cranial facials complex. But what we don't wanna do is take those teeth out of what their natural integrated position is and reposition them. So we wanna unwind the cranial strain patterns first, get the intraoral functioning, get the lip seal nasal breathing and bringing the teeth into alignment is the last step. It's and, what stabilizes it all. And what you had mentioned in the book as well is that one of the evidences that it appears of this is that once you get braces taken off, you're not done because unless you wear that retainer, That's right. things will continue to progress in the pattern based upon the way that those soft tissue issues and cranial strain panners has initially presented themselves as. Exactly. So there's 100% relapse in traditional orthodontics if you don't wear your retainer forever. And that should be in question. You know, that's really interesting to look at. Why does the body want to put that out of alignment. So it can't, it's not genetics that are just pulling it out. Genetics don't work like that. So the question is, is what are the soft tissue influences that are bringing the teeth into a different position? And I use that as kind of like a treasure hunt to try to figure out what the issue is. For example, if they've had braces and they're an adult and now they have crowding down here, which is very common, and they're having gum resorption down here, which is very common, I look at how they're swallowing and I look at how they're chewing and get a sense of why are those teeth being moved again? And well, almost always in that situation, it's an anterior tongue thrust, where instead of the tongue is still acting as if it's nursing, it's going forward and back, forward and back, forward and back. It hasn't transitioned into the adult swallow, which is up and back. So when the tongue goes forward, all this, the muscles here have to contract so the food doesn't come flying out. And this muscle here called the mentalis over contracts and it rubs 
on the gum tissue lower here and it wears it down and gets thin. So instead of getting, you know, uh, uh, gum surgery, which is what's recommended, I look at where the wear and tear is in the mouth with the gums. It could be up here, which is they could be doing something like that, stabilizing their mandible when they're swallowing. I'm laughing because the, oftentimes the explanation, and we see this in the physical movement realm as well, is imagine somebody hitting their head up against the wall and saying, well, my head hurts. And the traditional kind of approach right now is to put a sponge between the head and the <laughs> wall rather than actually stopping the person from slamming their head up against the wall. Right. So it just seems like everything is about this just kind of palliative care to try to remove the symptoms without focusing yes. on root cause. And I will yes. bring up one additional thing here because how this integrates with the work we see is that people have to understand that these cranial strain patterns and asymmetrical patterns continue all the way down the body. And we have more and more problems with this as being naturally asymmetri uh, asymmetrical from the start. You have a heart on one side and the liver on one side. Then on top of it, we're usually most often, of course, right-handed dominant. And we live in a world that supports ease for right-handed people. So now we're just locking ourselves into these asymmetrical imbalances and they're so prominent and they just are so uh, presupposed that we don't even know how to recognize them, which is very, very common in the movement field. And in particular, I see this manifested as when people do physical assessments on patients, um, they look at imbalance as if they can all exist just randomly and they don't exist randomly. The body has reflex patterns that if this muscle is tight and you pull your body this way, you should see a positive test on another part and et cetera. So it's fairly predictable, which is amazing that for myself and my colleagues, we sit back and wonder why people don't see this. And they're just so removed from even the, the thought process that these things manifest early on and just continue. And then we have injuries and so forth that occur that change things, but there's an inherent pattern that has been going on all the way from the beginning and I think that's in particular, which is causing a strong movement of practitioners to be interested in the work that you're doing, because again, we want to know where this is all starting from and what is the underlying pattern that drives this. And the reason why some of these corrective exercises and therapies and so forth don't stick. And because everybody starts to realize at some point, are we dealing with symptoms or are we really getting to this, this theoretical root cause? And uh, that, that seems to be always the question. Yeah, it is really interesting. I mean, you know, we haven't developed asymmetrically. No, we develop, again, epigenetics based on our functions. And our functions include how we sit, uh, mousing, you know, um, right-handed, left-handed. Um, do we have a good midline development? Can we do cross-patterning as a child? You know, are we developing that midline that's supposed to come in around nine years old neurologically? So, it's, it's wonderful that, that we can see a predominant pattern that happens with people, um, but it's so much more complex than that from, from where I'm looking, where I'm treating. Um, I, I have to assess the individuals as an individual, and I see the individual having their own pattern in terms of unique river, you know, and that river and flow of that river is going to create a unique riverbed to it. So it's looking at what is the pattern for this individual and what is the predominant obstacle to whole body integration? So that's um, just in, in addition to what, to what you're saying. And 
paying attention to patterns. I think that's the thing that's always the most important component for me is being able to step back and then to say, what else is included in this? What else is including to, included in this? And of course, it stretches across the whole biopsychosocial sphere, um, you know, influences such as nutrition, um, of course, psychology being the result of and per perhaps even a contributor to sometimes. But um, yeah, I think we're all on the same, um, the same playing field here. Um, what I do want to talk about, because we've mentioned it many times, I'm sure mm -hmm. people are, are ready for this, but uh, let's talk a little bit about the alpha appliance itself. Okay. And uh, you alluded to what it is. How is it used? Um, and in particular, um, what does the, the general process look like when you're using this kind of appliance? Yeah. So the, the rate limiting step in this whole alpha approach is getting good dentists, getting dentists who are well-trained in the alpha approach. That is... Um, the most difficult part is to find um, an ALF dentist in your area who's well-trained because they don't have to be trained in the ALF to put it on their website. And so unfortunately, what since it's getting to be more and more of a, um, um, it's getting more and more known, the ALF, then dentists will put it on their website and then they come in and then they say to the patients, well, that's, you know, the ALF won't help you, but this, you know, BioBlock will or rapid palate expander will and so forth. So unfortunately, that is happening more and more. There are places, um, let me just, I'll just finish the sentence. So there are places to look for dentists who have taken courses and there are different teachers out there. So there's slightly different perspective happening. My website has a list, um, ALF Orthodontics is a website that has a list. Dr. James Bronson has a list. Um, these are places that are going to, to have a, a list of uh, dentists who have taken courses. The, um, so it's the dentist is the one that does the evaluation, creates the design, implements the upper and lower um, light wire. It's a very, very light wire that goes behind the teeth, the upper and lower teeth. It does not inhibit the tongue. That's one of the reasons that's what Dr. Norrison wanted to do was to create an appliance, a dental appliance that was cranially friendly, that was actually holistic and integrative. And so in that way, because it's a 24 seven mile functional appliance, because it's attracting the tongue to go up, it's also the kind of wire that it is, is yellow algaloid wire, and it has a give to it. So it took Dr. Norrison a long time to um, perfect the kind of metal and the reason why this metal is so important is because it has a gift to it. It has a flexibility. So when we swallow, we're supposed to augment our cranial motion when we have a functional swallow. This wire augments that cranial motion every time you swallow. So now you're getting an unwinding of the cranial strain patterns 24-7. Um, and it's also an orthodontic orthopedic appliance because it will move teeth. But the very first phase of it is not moving teeth. The first phase of it is the unwinding process. We're trying to unwind and integrate the root causes of why the teeth are in the position that they're in. We don't start closing down. So we get the expansion that happens, but if, if a dentist uses it as an expansion appliance, it doesn't go well because it's a light wire and a little tiny bit of adjustment makes a large difference. If you, sure. if you, if you adjust it too strongly, you lock down the tissue. It's that property of thixotropy, which is a property of all colloidal models, that the tissue responds um, and either yields or doesn't yield depending on how it's acted upon. So if someone comes to you and gives you a great big hug, you're going to have a melting feeling as opposed to a pow, you contract and the tissues get hard and tight. 
So if they use the appliance incorrectly, it doesn't give the results it needs. And that's why the training process is so important for them to go through to understand the osteopathic principles that are behind the ALF adjusting. So I can imagine there's two additional components that are important is number one, probably a constant readjustment, probably like many things, right? So it's, it's carried out over a period of time with uh, tweaking, but two, the addition of, of other therapies, cranial osteopathy, uh, any kind of manual therapies. And this is where my interest is, is working with clients, uh, dealing with some of those patterns that might be contributing to this in lieu of the work that they're doing there as well to try to get the maximal effects. Mm-hmm. Yes, it is. It's in the very, in the beginning stages, it needs to be adjusted once a month because what's happening is there's a three-dimensional expansion that is happening and the appliance could even fall out or get loose on different sides, depending upon how it's affecting tongue function, how it is adjusting. Maybe it's adjusting more on one side than the other side. And that also tells me as a cranial osteopath, where are the restrictions? Because it's an indirect appliance. It's not going to push, it's not a bully. It's not going to push through the tissues. So how it, it is developing tells us where the restrictive patterns actually are also. It's just an indication. Um, and Yes, the collaborative approach is very important. Myofunctional therapy is a very important component of this approach. Um, when we see a tongue tie, they go straight to the myofunctional therapist. And it's the myof- my myofunctional therapist who tells us when they're ready for a phrenectomy or if they're going to get one. And we have other ways. In my office, we have something called laser 1064, which um, helps to release the muscles and the fascia underneath the tongue. And it helps to integrate the um, sex swallow neuro um, neurology. And so it's something that we can use right away in babies. So if there's a questionable tongue tie, we can a lot of times get them functioning just using the laser. It doesn't cut tissue. It, it should just feels warm. It doesn't hurt babies at all um, or adults. Uh, so there are different modalities that we have to try to optimize the tongue function, but myofunctional therapy and cranial osteopathy and the ALF dentists in general are kind of the three stools of working in this approach. And then also the other manual therapists to help with everything else also, but the cranium definitely needs to be uh, treated. It not definitely it, in, in adult and complicated cases, the cranium definitely needs to be treated in this process. And the process itself of the ALF approach goes about 50 times faster when you've got the cranial osteopath on board. So that's a price point difference for parents a lot of times, because in the beginning, who do you see first? You know, it's a resource issue. Also, not everybody can afford to see everybody. So who goes where in that triage is um, um, also an important aspect to assess. Yeah, and that's something that is always an issue. And this is a larger discussion, of course, which is managing multidisciplinary care. And uh, the challenge is, is that you're right. I mean, that's the thing. So who goes first? And in what order are things done in? And in particular, you know, again, finding those resources. And um, the, the, the challenge is, is under in trying to educate people on if you're seeing one practitioner, who just wants to stick an, an, ortho, an orthotic-based appliance anywhere in your body without any supplementary care, there's probably something wrong with that. And you should be skeptical of that um, because this stuff requires having to have multiple practitioners with different specialties addressing the things to keep the therapy moving forward. And I think that's a, that's a big issue. Um, so when you, I have two additional questions here when it comes to appliances. Number one, those of us who are parents know how challenging it is with little ones. And in, in particular, I've see, taken my son to see a cranial osteopath 
he cried the whole time. It was very hard to get him to stay still and a little bit nervous about taking them to a dentist to have this because number one, getting him to sit still two, having this appliance put in his mouth. And how does he respond to that? And I know that's going to be such a variety of things, but what has been your experience in using the alpha appliance with, with very young children? Is there an ideal point in which you're going to go for this? Or do you try multiple times and whenever they can lay on the table and accept it, then they get it? Well, thinking about for your child or a three or four-year-old, there's so much to do before we get them to the ALF. And even if they need the ALF, they're still young enough where we there's a high probability that we can get them functioning well without needing the ALF. That's young. Um, so, and in terms of it is also dentist uh, dependent. Like there's some dentists, like a pediatric ALF dentist, right? They're going to have a lot of skills on how to work with the little ones, right? So uh, it depends upon the skill set and even the social <laughs> IQ of the uh, dentist of how they're going to work with the little ones. You know, in my office, I treat lots and lots of little ones. It's, it's actually never a problem. I can treat, I've even treated before, you know, a kid was super, super, super ADD. And the only time he was quiet was in his car seat. So the parents <laughs> drove me around town for half an hour and I was in the back seat treating the kid. Like there's a lot of creative ways. You got to be super creative with the kids. I've treated kids like curled up underneath the table. I've treated them in their mom's arms or dad's arms the whole time. So you have to be creative and you have to like get that connection going and they can sense and feel, you know, they're, they can sense and feel like, oh, this person is trying to help me, you know? You know, I, maybe I like them. So, and sometimes it takes one or two treatments to get that warmth going. Um, but inevitably they all end up on the table falling asleep. So, um, <laughs> you know, adaptation. Yeah. Yeah. So you just stay with it and you, you basically what happens is this is the uh, parenting in general is you work with what's working. You look with what can they do? What are they comfortable with? And you start working with what, what is working for them, you know, and removing obstacles. And so the next question I would have is a two-parter to that is that you've got the, the young age and you say that, you know, there's a lot to do before that, before you may even get to the alpha appliance. Now, is there on the opposite end of that as a range where the alpha appliance becomes less useful? Is there an age or, you know, at a time where you're not even really going to focus on that, you're going to focus more on other things? Um, I would say, I mean, 70s. You know, when <laughs> I have a patient, I've treated patients in their 70s and some of them with the alf and... Um, and actually they do quite well. It's a health, it's a health supporting device. So we just use it. We kind of think of it a little differently. We're not trying to like necessarily expand, push things or get things open. What we're trying to do is support the base of the cranium to open. We're trying to get that intraoral function still happening. We're trying to get them optimal breathing. A lot of times we're working with sleep apnea, right? So now I have a, a new laser called a Photana night laser, which is truly amazing. And that tightens the collagen tissue in the posterior pharyngeal area. So um, it's having lots of different tools to use depending upon what the needs of the patient are and where, what their complaint is. And so you can get an ALF when you're in your seventies, but it's not going to be that we're trying to, and there will be some shift and change in the teeth for sure. But the expectation is going to be different than when working with like a five-year-old. Gotcha. And so, you know, there's so much here. I mean, I, I think we could go for another hour continuing to kind of delve into all of these topics, but I think we've got the core essence of number one, um, how many different things have been generally, I, I would say, uh, uh, completely unexplored from the most 
the time with people. Um, great opportunities for parents to start educating themselves before these things or as these things are starting to present themselves, but also the ability and, and the utility of using the, these devices and obviously approach up until 70 for different reasons, but there's options and there's things that people haven't explored. So are you finding that uh, dentists and odontists and so forth are starting to come around to these ideas a lot more? Uh, Obviously it's spreading and it's for the reason for writing a book, but are they seeking out more training and getting more uh, interested in these topics? Definitely. Definitely. It's really interesting. So um, I reflected how I've been teaching basically the same thing. I mean, we're, you know, everything is um, a new concept is always growing, right? So I've been learning and growing and learning and growing for the last so many years, but basically teaching a lot of the same concepts 20 plus years ago. I would say tw- I probably started teaching maybe 25, 24, something like that years ago. And I would remember finishing a lecture and I'd look out at the participants, mostly dentists, and their eyes are just like blank. And I'm like, I don't think it's getting through. And now when I teach, the eyes are popping. They're doing this. Like I just finished an online, I have an online course that I teach. And then I do Zoom meetings for um, question answers and discussions. And so this way I can reach out internationally. So I had a group of dentists and orthodontists from Europe. Um, now I have some from Australia reaching out and, um, they're like, wow, they get it. They just get it. And I think it's because one of those things of like, you know, the story of the hundredth monkey, you know, the exponential curve, when enough people know about something with enough monkeys figured out how to dip their banana in the ocean to get salt on it or something (laughs) like that, all of a sudden it crossed over to another Island, you know? So it's, we're at that place of exponential, we're right at the bottom and that was definitely a big motivation for writing the book. The other part, I needed to just get this out of my head yes. and on a piece of paper. Um, but we're about to ex- we're about to explode with a whole paradigm shift in how we're approaching craniofacial dysfunction, malocclusions, and we need to get more dentists because they're going to be getting parents in asking for this. Well, I want to be a big contributor to that by a pushing your book out there to as many parents as I know Thank and getting you. this information out there. And for the purpose of the podcast, as you know, most of my listeners know, the reason why I do this is to seek out experts in some of these topics that is very hard to find information on and introduce them. But then the next logical step is to read the book and then to start seeking out resources. As we generally, as a population, start forcing the hand to say, this is what we want, then yes. we're going to have a response to that to more practitioners uh, who are going to respond to that demand and get the proper training to be able to help us in the direction that we want. And I think that's really, really important. Yes, absolutely. And I'm very committed to getting the word out too and love teaching and um, feel grateful that there's an ease of flow that's opening and happening already. Absolutely. And so uh, I don't want to take up too much more of your time here, Doc. Thank you so much. But let's yeah. find out a little bit more. So you got your book, uh, which yeah. case I'll link to that below so that people can get access to it anybody, but parents in particular, I'm really heavy handed with the push on that. Um, Anywhere else where people can follow up with you, you've got some awesome YouTube videos. I've already checked those out with a lot more detail and in particular pictures, which a lot of the stuff that we had talked about, but you show a lot of uh, images about this stuff too, which is pretty awesome with very, very impressive changes with before and afters and so forth. But where's the best place to keep up with you today? Um, Gosh, I mean, the website has information. Um, I'm hoping... um, you know, I'm, te- I'm focusing on teaching out with uh, dentists and osteopaths and myofunctional therapists. I'm teaching in Washington, D.C. this weekend and back again next month. Um, 
I don't really know. <laughs> <laughs> I think the website and the website okay. and YouTube is where I was following up on your stuff. Yeah. So, yeah. but I'll, I'll look you up for those things to make sure those there. And of course the, uh, the link to the book too, but okay. uh, any final thoughts that you want to give the audience? Yeah. I just, uh, um, hats off to the parents. It's challenging being a parent in this time, uh, and this age. And there's a lot of, um, new issues that come up with our children. And I'm hoping that as these new issues come up that, you know, universe is providing solutions and the alpha approach is definitely one of those solutions and hope it's that it's, you know, helpful for many, many people. Absolutely. And we'll make it so. So Dr. Terzo, thank you so much again for being here. Uh, everybody listeners, thanks for listening again, and you know where to subscribe and to watch for the next episode. So I'll see you next time.